Welcome to A New Republic, An Oral History of the Indian Constitution. Episode 6, The Great War. Hello. Um, I'm a little out of breath because for the last 40 minutes or so, I've been walking up and down through some fields and... Uh, and passed what i think was some vampire cows nobody's attacked me so far but you know anyway so uh, i'm standing on almost the top of a hill overlooking uh, a small kind of residential suburb of patcham which itself is uh, around 3 miles away from brighton a very popular holiday resort in the south of uh, great british island and i'm here really in the middle of nowhere because right here on this hill is uh, one of the more unique memorials to indian soldiers you will probably find anywhere in the world because on this hill in front of me i can see a chhatri or a sicilian marble umbrella which would look entirely at home in uh, a garden in delhi or rajasthan or some such place it's a it looks like a solar topi which is kind of perched on top of a number of marble pillars and um this this chhatri stands on top of a of a platform on which it is inscribed and let me just go up to read it says to the memory of all the indian soldiers who gave their lives in the service of their king emperor in the great war this monument erected on the site of the funeral pyre where the hindus and sikhs who died in hospital at brighton passed through the fire is in grateful admiration and brotherly affection dedicated uh, brighton uh, is renowned for uh, uh, for being a seaside resort but also for the brighton pavilion which is uh, this bizarre uh, piece of uh, mishmash east west fusion architecture um it's quite popular tourist these days but uh, during the first world war it served as a hospital for thousands of indian soldiers and 54 of the hindus and sikh soldiers who died at brighton were cremated here on this platform or just underneath this platform it's been covered over the original cremation area has been covered over on this platform um and this is now a memorial not just to them but to uh, all the indian soldiers approximately 70000 of whom died in the first world war it's, it's difficult to get to and it's kind of initially i kind of felt there is a weird place to build a memorial but now when you think about it it kind of makes sense because uh, many of these soldiers who we'll hear about later in this podcast came thousands of miles away from home to fight for a kingdom and a king they rarely ever seen and probably never really understood and if you stand on the hill you can look across patcham and brighton and see a thin sliver of the sea I can actually see uh, tanker ships going past. So perhaps it also symbolizes their their heroism and their fight for a cause from which they were really remote. And thus they remain remote to this day. And uh, I've come here because th- today we'll speak about the first world war about India's role in it. And from a constitutional perspective, we'll talk about um, about how the first world war and what happened just before during and after uh, had an impact on uh, india's constitution today so i'll uh, i'll talk to you again when i get back home but for the time being 
I'm just going to sit here for a while and uh, think. Welcome back. So far in this podcast, we've looked at uh, the history of the Indian Constitution, largely from the revolt of 1857 and leading right up till the First World War. Now, there are a couple of aspects of this history that I think stand out. First of all, there is this general sense of confusion that arises from the fact that the British are simultaneously trying to do two things. In India, they're trying to build an administrative framework which can help them govern this very large colony. And at the same time, in London, they're also drawing up the legislative framework that can support this administration. And trying to do both of these things at the same time is proving to be a huge challenge. Another thing is the quality of Indian nationalist leadership. Now, there are several high-profile leaders at this point in time, and many of them are moderates, some are extremists, but overall, um, you see few leaders who really stamp their authority on the scene, and much less actually have a, a constitutional legacy to be proud of. There are one or two, and there are some constitutional elements which will become important in this story, but we'll talk about them several episodes from now. But overall, there are few leaders who really, uh, who really stand apart. The situation completely changes after the First World War. On the one hand, there is a much greater sense of sophistication and maturity about uh, the whole leadership of the nationalist movement. Partly this is because uh, of the arrival on the scene of leaders of the caliber of uh, Mahatma Gandhi. But also an important thing to keep in mind is that in just three decades, from the end of the First World War to when India finally gets freedom, we go from having kind of a ragtag bunch of moderate leaders to having a group of uh, extremely well-educated, extremely competent, and uh, I would say fairly enlightened uh, leaders who are capable of sitting down and drawing up a, a quite resilient and in many ways quite individual constitution. So in the next few episodes, we're going to uh, look at... Uh, how this story pans out and how this transformation takes place. How do we go from the chaos of the First World War to uh, the um, refinement, if I can say that, of the actual Indian constitution? And let me start with a very broad overview of the First World War. And mind you, I'm going to paint this in the broadest possible strokes. And uh, if you want to read in any more detail, and you should, it's very interesting, you could try David Stevenson's uh, critically acclaimed book, 1914 to 1919, The History of the First World War. The opening chapters of that book in particular, I think, uh, explain to a large extent the confusing circumstances that actually led to the war. But let's quickly, uh, let's quickly kind of outline the profile of this terrible conflict. Now, the First World War has been depicted very accurately, I think, as the last of the great pre-industrial military conflicts and the first of the great industrial military conflicts. What this means is that on the one hand, you had British cavalry officers charging into battle um, armed with swords against defenders who used machine guns, or you had um, French soldiers fighting in the trenches wearing traditional bright red, white, and blue French uniforms. And at the same time, you had uh, the first initial use of chemical, chemical weapons during warfare, in this case, uh, tanks of chlorine and phosgene gas. And you also had the first widespread use of quick-firing field guns. It's an interesting confluence of new and old, but a disastrous one for Europe. Because what you would see 
is um, generals using ancient war methods, which is droves of waves upon waves of soldiers just charging into battle against defenders who used uh, state-of-the-art uh, machinery like machine guns and so on. What this basically did was to turn almost all of Europe into this horrible meat grinder that eventually ended up killing 17 million people and injuring approximately 20 million more. In the long run, of course, the war had uh, tremendous effects on uh, Europe, especially in geopolitical terms. For instance, let me just point out one transformation that takes place in Europe. Now, at the, at the outbreak of the First World War, Britain and France are the only major uh, powers who have uh, armies that report to civilian governments. Almost all the other major powers involved in the war, Germany, Austria, Hungary, um, Russia, and even the Ottoman Empire, they all had um, armies that still saw oversight and day-to-day -day interference from uh, hereditary monarchs. And um, the situation completely changes by uh, the, third, the Second World War. Because by the Second World War, almost all of these countries are run by civilian governments. And nowhere is this transformation more drastic than it is in Russia, where you see the autocracy of the Tsars being overtaken by the sheer insanity of Stalin. However, the, the, the real tragedy, I think, of the First World War is that Unlike many other military conflicts, it wasn't largely one of possession. It was actually simply a war of posture. You had these two groups of allies going to war and persisting with hostilities, largely to prove the point that they shouldn't be trifled with. And I think the tragedy of a war of posture is that you never know when to stop. Now, a war of possession, you lose property, you stop, you gain land, you stop. A war of, pos of posture, on the other hand, is almost impossible to know when to stop. When have you proved your point? And I think that is perhaps why um, the First World War is remembered as this brutal, pointless conflict, while the Second World War is remembered in, in very different, and I would say even um, heroic terms. So where in the midst of this pan-European, mine is bigger than yours game, does India figure? Uh, to understand the Indian involvement, I think we should start with one fact. When Britain went to war in 1914, the entire British army had a strength of, I think, approximately 700 to 750,000 people. And uh, I think over half of them were posted abroad to take care of the colonies. Of the remaining, the real number of professional, trained, regular soldiers that the British had, I think, were around 100,000. This is remarkable when you think about it, which means Britain committed to this terrible conflict largely with an army of 100,000 regular soldiers, while they were facing opponents who uh, were walking into battle with armies five or six times as big. So it shouldn't surprise anyone that uh, within a few months of the war breaking out, uh, the British basically ran out of soldiers. Now for the other our countries involved in the war, um, they had uh, conscription policies that helped them to uh, force populations to participate in their armies. Britain didn't have a conscription policy, at least in the early years. Instead, it entirely depended on volunteers. And uh, the British government soon decided to shore up this, this group of uh, undertrained and underarmed uh, volunteer armies with um, new forces shipped in from the colonies. Uh, and by the colonies, I mean places like um, India, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and a few other places. And uh, 
it is estimated that by the end of the war some 1.3 million indians volunteered for the british army for uh, the first world war of which an astonishing 1 million soldiers actually saw action in fact on landing in europe in late 1914 many of these indians were immediately shipped off to see some of the toughest action on the western front they fought in places like ypres in belgium which would become this terrible killing field and later they would also fight at um, a place called neuve chapelle in france where in particular uh, indian actions are fondly remembered in just one battle that lasted for just 3 days here called the battle of neuve chapelle some 4200 indian soldiers were killed or wounded so today if you go to this little village in france you'll see the indian memorial which is a, a tribute to uh, approximately 4700 indian soldiers who died on the western front but were buried in unmarked graves and this is a memorial to them however despite some valiant fighting many of these indian uh, troops were quickly withdrawn from the western front and shipped off to less crucial uh, battlefields in mesopotamia turkey and east africa this is not because they were inferior troops no the problem was that the british just quickly ran out of officers who could speak any of the indian languages or had any um, exposure at all working with indian troops which probably explains why despite sending over a million soldiers into battle india actually suffered uh, very few casualties in comparison to the other armies like i said before of the million soldiers who went to fight um, losses were approximately 75 or 76000 which is huge absolutely but when you compare to the millions of soldiers who died in europe kind of becomes a statistical rounding off error now it's difficult to say today how crucial these 1 million soldiers were would the war have turned out differently if indian troops hadn't participated it's hard to say but there is one indian contribution the effect of which we can measure precisely and that is money as soon as the war was declared there was this tremendous outpouring of support for the allied cause all over india members of every political regional and um, religious persuasion would fall over each other to pledge their allegiance to the crown and to the fight against germany and austria hungary now today it's easy to kind of sit back and dismiss this loyalty as um, an outcome of colonial suppression but if you read many of these declarations they sound tremendously sincere and tremendously um, well meaning and uh, a good book to check this out is a book by budeshwar pati called india in the first world war it has uh, several uh, copies of uh, declarations of loyalty made by congress leaders muslim leaders sikh leaders the various maharajas and so on and the sincerity is also reflected if you uh, read through the letters sent back home by indian soldiers from the various fronts um it's quite moving to read this and see um how they talk about the these tremendously horrible battles that they're fighting but they're doing this because of their uh, uh, commitment towards king god and country in fact so enthusiastic was the indian administration and men, and many elite indians that this country perhaps the poorest part of the british empire decided to sacrifice an astonishing amount of money for the war cause by the end of the war according to one estimate the indian government uh, elite indians indian noblemen all together sent approximately a billion pounds in cash and kind for the war cause a billion pounds 
1914. That's an astonishing sum of money. Uh, you'd go through the records and you'd see things like a maharaj of a small kingdom somewhere would pledge a thousand troops and promise to buy three ambulances. Another maharaj somewhere would offer cash, a few troops, but then also offer to fight himself on the front lines. And this happened frequently and quite regularly. And as you can imagine, all this generosity uh, only managed to cripple national finances for a very long time. However, much like continental Europe, as the war progressed, the enthusiasm for conflict would begin to diminish. In Europe, this was largely because of the meaningless slaughter. In India, it was a combination of inflation, rising prices, supply shortages, and by the second half of the war, there was a full-fledged economic slowdown and crisis in India. In addition to all this, there was one more problem, and uh, that was a sudden explosion in what might be called extremist nationalism. And of all the extremist conspiracies that were rife in India at this point in time, the most unsettling for the British was the uh, conspiracy that has been known as the Hindu-German or the Indo-German conspiracy. This was a, a tremendously sophisticated international um, attempt at trying to create mutiny in the Indian army all across the subcontinent and in garrisons in the southeast uh, of Asia. And in this effort, uh, Indians were supported by agents in America, Ireland, Germany and even the Ottoman Empire. In fact, some historians say that the Germans had fond hopes that somehow they'd be able to create unrest in India because they thought that if all of India exploded in extremist uprising, the British would have no option but to withdraw many, many troops from all fronts and rush them to India to restore order. Eventually, frenzied British intelligence work, again coordinated between embassies across the world, would suppress this um, would suppress this conspiracy. Another unfortunate outcome of this would be a new set of sedition laws. And these laws would ultimately culminate in the Jallianwala Bagh massacre and immensely increase popular support for Congress and Mahatma Gandhi's leadership. Also, do keep in mind that many of these ugly sedition laws would rear their heads again 30 years from now when the Indian Constitutional Assembly sits down to debate our constitution. There were two more outcomes of the First World War that many historians say influenced Indian nationalism. The first one was the sheer number of soldiers who returned to India having seen the lifestyles of their colonial masters abroad. They'd come back and wonder if these people were living so comfortably there, why weren't we, subjects of the same empire, living as comfortably? In Russia, as we know, these disgruntled soldiers would later come back and help to fuel the Russian Revolution. The impact in India was less immediate, but still substantial. Another unforeseen fallout of the war was that it helped to make uneasy bedfellows of the Hindu and Muslim leadership. Remember, when we spoke last time, the uh, partition of Bengal and the creation of communal electorates had driven a wedge between the Hindus and the Muslims. The First World War helped to heal that somehow. And that is because at the beginning of the war, there was some consternation amongst Indian Muslims that the British were fighting the Turkish Empire. Remember, the Turks were the most powerful Muslim uh, empire in the world at the time, and the Ottoman Sultan was kind of the de facto head of the Muslim religion. However, 
later muslims to all over india pledge their loyalty for their for the empire and um, muslim soldiers fight the ottomans even um, in various theaters of war however this had the effect of dismantling what had been a, a, a soft friendship between the muslims and the british for many years and it would bring the muslims closer to the congress and somehow help to unite the indian nationalist movement the first world war finally ended in 1919 killing many millions of people and injuring millions more it redrew boundaries and unfortunately i think it created even more animosity between certain nations and like i said before while india's participation was quite substantial our losses from the war was small however a much greater misfortune was to befall the colony shortly after the first world war and that is the spanish flu epidemic estimates of the death toll in india alone are approximately 18 million and in fact the toll in india is approximately one third of the global toll this is an astonishing loss of human life and to top it all off and i suppose to make things even worse uh, india was no closer to freedom or self governance despite their lavish wartime loyalty many indians hoped that their sacrifice and participation would lead to serious discussions of self government after the war this did not happen so it is in this environment that our story will progress over the next few episodes an environment in which india has been ravaged by disease and economic crisis one where a nervous british government is beginning to unleash increasingly brutal laws to prevent what they see is sedition and an environment in which the nationalist movement has greater unity and popularity than ever before indeed if you ask me it looks like a barrel full of gunpowder an explosive situation just waiting for a spark and perhaps that spark appears in the shape of a certain barrister from gujarat now next week we look at uh, the next phase of legislative development namely the montague chelmsford reforms till then take care i'll see you